0: Hi, welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and with me, as always, is Nicholas Seagraves. Hey, Nick. Hi, Ryan. Today, episode 24 of The Mean is entitled A Republic. Now, this is not an explicitly political podcast. This is a podcast, I mean, The Mean in general. It is a podcast about popular culture and philosophy, so we're not going to be talking too much about just pure politics. We're going to be talking about the philosophy behind a lot of kind of misconceptions we see in popular culture about what exactly uh, the United States of America is, how it ought to function, how certain candidates like Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump are proposing things that may or may not philosophically jive with what the idea of this country was and continues to be for many people. And so I just wanted to dive right into it today. Um, when you think of the phrase "republic" or "a republic," Nick, what are what's the first thing or the first couple of things that that pops into your mind either on a, on a cultural or a philosophical level.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a form of society or government, depending on how you think those two things interact, of course, um, Mm. who in which discourse uh, debate and collective decision-making is very important, but Mm. it's also tempered with formalism. And by Mm. that, I mean, uh, or maybe I should say structuralism, there's some type of inact structure that kind of keeps the whole thing moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's normally related, it's a free society, uh, which I know is a loaded description, mm-hmm. but...
0: Yeah, I think of a few things. Uh, Plato's Republic comes mm-hmm. to mind. Uh, the Roman Republic comes to mind. The Republican Star Wars, the mm-hmm. Old Republic comes to mind. And... Um, just the word representation mm-hmm. comes to mind. So those are some of the first phrases and words that come up in my brain when I start to think about the fact that we are a republic. Now, we're not just a republic in the Roman republic sense of the word. We are a democratic republic. And we're not just a democratic republic. We're a democratic constitutional republic. Um, what do those things add philosophically in your brain when you hear the words democratic, constitutional, and republic kind of all thrown in the same
1: basket? Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, they, the nomenclature is representative of how it works. You know? So mm-hmm. there is some form of uh, voting democratic. There's some form <laughs> of every citizen, however the republic chooses to define that, might be different between republics. Um, And then constitutional, I think, is the most interesting word in that Mm -hmm. because it adds like almost an I don't want to say anti-democratic, but it's something that isn't or isn't easily affected by by popular Mm -hmm. demands. Yeah, I think it
0: it, it is a relativization of the voice of the people. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you would want to write a constitution at all means that you don't want a pure democracy. Mm-hmm. Because majority rule is, if it was pure majority rule, why would you need a constitution at all? Like, what you know? Why would you need laws? And in particular, why would you need um, the constitutional freedoms that are represented by the Bill of Rights, the First Ten Amendments to the Constitution? Why would you need any of those sort of protections if you just wanted the majority to decide things? Mm-hmm. I think... So. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, like, I, I actually wanted to know, just from your perspective, like, why would it be desirable to have any restrictions on democracy? Like, would it just be better if we were a pure democracy?
1: Yeah, and I, I think you can't answer that question without showing your philosophy cards if mm-hmm. that makes sense. so Yeah, which is why but, this
0: this is an interesting episode because we're mm-hmm. going to have to put our philosophy cards on the table to discuss it.
1: Exactly. So I think a lot of people will say things like, well, people can be influenced really easily and mob rule. I think it's something mm-hmm. people throw around are the tyranny of the majority mm-hmm. um, and things like that. But those all kind of um, have the underbellies of philosophic commitments. So, I mean, like, Mm -hmm. I think so. Okay. So let's,
0: let's get real. We're only five minutes into the episode, but Mm -hmm. what are the philosophic differences or the differences in philosophical commitment between someone who would argue for more of a pure democracy? Let's say even someone who's as centrist as Jefferson, Mm -hmm. um, Thomas Jefferson, someone who had argued, no, it needs to be living, it needs to be alive, there need to be revolutions, the people's will must be expressed, like real democratic um, expressions or philosophical positions, versus someone who was more like Adams, who was like, no, we need to make, you know, the Leviathan is in place to make life less nasty, brutish, and short, we do need governance we do need rules and laws. We can't be just a nation of people. We should be a nation of laws and a a nation of even elites or classes. You know, what are the, what are the different philosophical, um, polls here? If I know, I know there are a lot of different binaries we could express, Mm -hmm. but if if one of the big binaries is pure in the moment representation of 51% of the people who are alive right now versus restraint or constitutionality or, uh, the rule of law, or per minority protections, you know, what, you know, how do you view that philosophically? How does that reveal uh, the differences in philosophical commitment between people who would take uh, different sides in in that binary?
1: Mm. Well, it's really interesting because it, it, it's an argument between classicalism and romanticism in the deepest sense. Mm, I like it. Uh, Yeah. So in a classicalist, um, I guess I, should, I could just say classic, although that has a lot of connotation. In a, in a classicalist, quote-unquote, um, worldview, it, I mean, that term can apply to a lot of things, but the general theme running through it is that nature is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, how things are, are cool. It's, it's fine, but mm. through will... And Mm -hmm. through reason and through Mm -hmm. dedication and all these Mm -hmm. other virtues um, that is central to humans, so humans have Mm -hmm. a very large part to play in this, we Mm -hmm. can form things. So Mm -hmm. if you, I mean, it seems very different, but if you look at what we consider classical music Mm -hmm. or classical painting, you have these this sense of control this sense yes. of um mm-hmm. i'm not going to indulge in certain things like i'm mm-hmm. going, like a bach piece is so formal it's it's almost like he, mm-hmm. he's trying to only deal with music mm-hmm. in and of itself mm-hmm. um and i i i,
0: like, I think you touched on
1: something really important
0: yes. and really deep here i know that not everybody Um, subscribes to kind of a a tripartite human model Mm -hmm. but if we are kind of looking at the aspects of human of will intellect and emotion Mm -hmm. with the will being kind of the one who joins either emotion or intellect or Mm -hmm. you know the rational capacity to overthrow the third part party uh, that kind of classical sensibility about what it means to be human Um, the people who want laws and constitutions and minority rights and protections and balances and all of those things. I think that involves a union of the rational faculty and the, the will, right? So those team up and kind of make things happen. Like you're talking about control, you're talking about form, you're talking about imposition of structure upon nature. On the other hand, um, with romanticism, which you haven't gotten to yet, but I'll kind of preview it. Uh, for you here is if if the emotional capacity and the will kind of team up um, with this mysterious thing called nature, which is kind mm-hmm. of how things are, how we feel them to be, how we respond to them without really disciplining our response, the, the sort of tabula rasa, um, Bruce, Rousseau, um, Jefferson, um, I'm sure you know some ancient philosophers who, who are arguing for the natural impulses that 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 would be the other side of the coin. The sort of like well nature is in itself better than these weird constraints that we place upon it. So that would be the, the teaming up of the faculty of the will and the faculty of the emotions. Um, does mm-hmm. does that jive with what you're describing or Yeah,
1: totally. I, I think will is really important to talk about in this. I both groups treat the will as very very important, you know. Like I mm-hmm. think at worst, classicalism can be parodied as like reason, 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 thinking, 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 boring, 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 mm-hmm. uh repression, yeah, uh, blah blah blah, and I think at the worst, romanticism can be characterized as like silly, spooky mm-hmm. emotionalism, mm-hmm. spiritualishness, um mm-hmm. never really landing on anything, kind mm-hmm. of willy nilly jumping around in a field. Mm-hmm undisciplined byron, aesthetic yeah or byron dying from like dysentery in some grecian hospital like blah 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 mm-hmm. um, but it i think they both at their best have this thing where it's like the will is actually the most important part so it's the will siding with reason siding with thought and kind of allowing a life and therefore society to to flourish from that and with Romanticism, I think what it is, it's a, it's a return to receptivity, I think, is the best thing that came out of it.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: think it's kind of not looking with suspicion on everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind, of, think, kind of
0: accepting the creatureliness of the human
1: mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. an animal. The fact that emotions are important, the fact that they can be useful... Um, and more importantly, that they exist. I think a, a, one of the strongest romantic critiques, and a lot of people, even some of my professors, view postmodernism as like the most recent flourishing of romanticism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is that you might, in a classical world view, think that you're controlling all these things. But in reality, you still very much are using almost all of your emotional faculties to make some sort of decision. Mm-hmm.
0: You know? Well, it's the person who pretends they're a pure, rational animal, but is very emotional. We know a lot of people like this that claim, like, well, I'm just a purely scientific, rational person, and they're mm-hmm. some of the most emotional people we know. They're just not honest about it.
1: Yeah. So there's that. Um, and I, I think for... At the, at the time, I think history, like you always say, is very important, the context of, like, what's going on. So you have these kind of, this was a revolutionary time, you know, and not in terms of, like, a new iPad came out, but in Mm -hmm. terms of, like, actual political revolutions were happening Mm -hmm. in a lot of Mm -hmm. places. And I, I think that's why these debates and the reading that these men did was very important because everyone was talking about it. I mean, you had people basically staking the, like everything was really apocalyptic. Like if you read (laughs) literature and even just like found documents from that period, the apocalypse was something that people were like really into talking about in a, in a positive and negative way. So you had people were like the French revolution is going to change the way the work human beings are forever. Like this is the end of humanity in the
0: beginning of something else. Do you think that's partially a reaction against, or maybe just an answer in kind to the idea that Kings were divinely appointed?
1: Yeah. I think everyone was bored of not bored. That sounds uh, patronizing, but everyone was like finished with monarchies. Mm -hmm. I think we, I think. Because
0: monarchies, their claims were metaphysical. Mm Mm-hmm. So revolutions, the claims also had to be metaphysical.
1: Yeah. Like
0: we're changing reality here. Oh,
1: exactly. I think what people don't realize uh, and when we look back on this stuff, we have a very distinct, um, especially post-World War II and especially post-Korea and Vietnam as Americans, we have a Mm -hmm. very, at least a lot of people I know and even my parents and even my grandparents, have a there's an us life, so like the life I'm living, and I and I'm and I'm part of the American system. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a little bit of space between those two ideas, but I I don't think people realize that when patriotism wasn't a negative thing, really, or people didn't yeah. have arguments against it, there is a very small difference between being a someone named Jacques and being a Frenchman, you know, not that saying that there were, there weren't individuals, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you had a King, part of the reason Mm -hmm. of having a King and a Queen, just on a cultural understanding, it's kind of like the Lord vassal kind of leftover thought Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. like, we are all part of this thing, Mm -hmm. which is represented by this human who has all these things. So moving away from that, like you said, requires a certain kind of restructuring of a meta of metaphysics because people live their lives in servitude of a kingdom, you know? Mm-hmm. So that has to change. And I think we make fun of who was, Oh my God, I'm totally farting on brain farting on this, but like, was it George the third? Was that during the time? Was that he, the guy?
0: It was George the second and then George the third. So I think the, 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 George II, we weren't big fans of as mm-hmm. colonists. And then I think George III was the uh, the straw that broke the camel's back kind of a thing.
1: Which one of them said, I feel bad that America doesn't have a king? Do you know the quote I'm talking about? Yeah, or the guy like who... Kitty.
0: Yeah, the guy... Well, the king who John Adams was the first um, representative a- ambassador to mm-hmm. um, said, I-, I hope that America does not want in its lack of a king. Kind of like, I hope you guys aren't hurt too badly by not having a king.
1: Yeah. And I think that kind of shows how... Um, and I think that was George the III. Right? Okay. That's why I, I thought I remembered that. But I, regardless of who said it, or even if it happened, even if it's, it's believable, because I think at the time, everything was very symbolic. You know, like having a king meant something. And I think that's why all this conversation about republics, even from our, even like imagine a document, like the declaration of independence coming out today, like <laughs> the types of claims they make in the beginning of that document are so, they have nothing mm-hmm. to do with practical government at all. They are yeah, like, they're, they're quasi religious, yeah. quasi
0: religious metaphysical statements about what reality is that, mm-hmm. that, people have these things called rights that are divine gifts and that the basis of a government ought to be that all humans, at least all white male humans, um, practically speaking, that's me being ironic. Um, But but the ideal is that all humans indeed do have divinely gifted rights that ought to be respected and that from these rights,
1: um, government ought to spring. That's, no one would say that. I I don't think you can go to, I think people say that in a way that they don't realize they're being so metaphysical, you know, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. all of that is to say, I don't want to get on a tangent on it, but that's the type of environment these people are in. So I don't think it's a stretch for us to be reading classicalism versus romanticism, Rousseau versus Locke versus Hobbes into Mm -hmm. this, you know, these weren't like peripheral figures in this discussion, people were trying to figure out how to think about government again. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, they're trying to decide
0: who is right in their description of reality. Is is Hobbes right that life is nasty, brutish, and short, and therefore the Leviathan is in place to, you know, secure against that? Is Locke right that society is a negotiated set of contracts that we all implicitly agree to and the the rights of the the governed are are the, the chief concern is rousseau right that human beings are naturally good and that they're corrupted by systems i mean all these people can't be right mm-hmm. so the american experiment experiment in self-government and the, the federalist system that that developed the majority rule with minority rights was a real instantiation of a debate By the founders that some combination of these ideas was the best combination of ideas to make a functional republic that was also democratic uh, to a certain
1: extent Mm -hmm. and even more than those people I think ancient history and philosophies and politics were Mm -hmm. obviously on the mind like even from the way that these men talked and what they referenced Roman and Greek statehood and politics mm-hmm. well, like stoicism
0: versus Epicureanism mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that seems to be kind of the Adams versus Jefferson thing
1: yeah and Plato has obviously a huge huge importance mm-hmm. on this I mean he did write the Republic mm-hmm. so and the fact that a lot of our
0: early leaders were what we would classify as you know pretty close to being philosopher kings mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. you know pretty close to Plato's description. Yeah. so where do we see this coming down today or I guess what parts of popular culture does this interact with or intersect with or do we feel compelled to comment upon we're not going to do an exhaustive philosophical excavation of all the things we've mentioned in brief a lot of the the philosophical moves and, and discussions that were going on around the time of the founding uh, of the United States. And obviously there were, there were historical factors at play and economic factors at play and religious factors at play. But what is happening right now in popular culture um, that makes these kinds of thoughts important or maybe revisiting some of the philosophical bases for, for how we function or how we were meant to function by the people who founded this, this political society you know, what's important right now? What's going on right now that when you think about it, you go, man, if people just really kind of more deeply understood how this whole thing was supposed to work, they wouldn't do
1: X or say Y. Mm-hmm. I think before we start any of that conversation, it's important because there's a great forgetfulness in our culture. Yes. I think yeah. there's yeah. almost an element. I, I constantly And so many things in my beliefs have been clarified by trying to get at why this started in the first place, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind type of reasoning. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think a lot of confusion happens in our political discourse in particular, because people will say things like uh, yesterday, someone told me, even if Bernie does win, the corruption in the House and the Senate would never let him accomplish all of his goals. Mm-hmm. And what are, you know, the, the, there's constant Reddit threads about, like, how the Electoral College is set up to not allow a popular revolution to happen or that, mm-hmm. you know, people win the popular vote, but somehow magically they don't get the presidency or um, things mm-hmm. like that. And it just shows me that they don't, I don't want to come off as like high and mighty, but they don't understand why anything was done in the first place. They act as if what really should happen and what has happened in the past is that a president gets elected, the Senate and House, you know, bend down and open up and just let him do anything he wants. And mm-hmm. the Supreme Court like tidies up later and that's how the system works and they i mm-hmm. don't think they understand that like from the beginning you have adams and hamilton versus jefferson you know like mm-hmm. there's never there was never a time where everyone was like we are all doing this and george mm-hmm. washington needs to be king and let him do whatever Mm -hmm. he
0: wants. Well, and Adams and and Hamilton were more likely... It's so funny. Adams Mm -hmm. and Hamilton, because they had a lower view of humanity, wanted there to be a stronger government Mm -hmm. to inhibit the passions of of the mob, right? Mm -hmm. But in so doing, they were willing, in their sort of class elitism, to give more power to a more king-like president. And Jefferson was the one going, no, 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 no. We need a limited government, we need more state power, and we need uh, an individual bill of rights in order to secure liberty for people against a tyrannical, um, evil, monarchical government. So it's funny that they agreed that people given power are dangerous, and that those people must be limited, that they must be countered. But on one side of the equation, you have people making the argument that the real thing to fear is the mob. And on the other side, you have the argument that the real thing to fear is the leadership. Mm -hmm. Which I think is kind of interesting. They agree that things should be, that, that there should be checks and balances. They just don't agree on what is the more dangerous. I mean, Jefferson helped foment the French Revolution. So obviously, he thought that elite king-like rule was the was the bigger danger and it seems like hamilton and adams uh believed that the that one of the big dangers was a a, a weak government that couldn't really um constrain the passions passions of the mob
1: yeah and i think it goes to show you there's like a narrative that anti-federalists are kind of democrats today Mm -hmm. and Federalists are kind of the Republicans today on a personality level. I guess Mm -hmm. maybe that's true, but Mm -hmm. from a, like you just said, from a political level, what do you mean Democrats are anti-Federalists? Like there's no, that's like the opposite of everything. Yeah. If anyone's
0: arguing, if anyone's arguing to return more power to the States and to, to devolve power away from the presidency. It's conservatives, libertarians, and Republicans. And people like Bernie Sanders um, and Hillary Clinton want the government to be more powerful. They want the federal government to be more powerful. They want the presidency to be more powerful, just like Barack Obama made it more powerful and George W. Bush made it more powerful as a moderate Republican, um, which people seem to forget that he was a, quote, compassionate conservative that centralized education in the Department of Education rather than devolving it back to the states. So there were some sort of, um, federalizing tendencies, but the big, I mean, the big fly in the ointment of everything that I just said is Donald Trump. Cause no one knows yeah. what he is. He doesn't have a philosophy. <laughs> he doesn't, you know, yeah. there is, there is no like ruling rule with him. And so some of his policies that he's talked about, although none in detail seem to be federalist. Some of them seem to be anti-federalist. Some, some of them seem to be mob rule, but ultimately it's mob rule designed make him a powerful strongman president who can get things done in Washington and make the government even stronger um, than it normally is. And at this point, I'd like to quote um, a little meme I saw the other day. I think you'll enjoy. So it's a meme where on the left is a blue picture with white hair of Bernie Sanders. It's like a profile. So on the left you have this blue kind of outline of Bernie Sanders on the right you have this kind of orange golden haired outline of Donald Trump so they're both both very iconic looking. Mm-hmm. So on the right you have Trump on the left you have Sanders and it's a quote from uh, Hayek one of the philosophical founders of conservatism. Mm-hmm. And Hayek says uh, what in effect unites the socialists of the left and the right? Is this common hostility to competition and their common desire to replace it by a directed economy and although i don't know if i agree with that quote what it does bring me to is that bernie sanders on the left and donald trump on the right even though trump has a lot of moderate positions they're not moderately stated and they they seem to all be designed to give him greater amount of power and even though sanders movement seems to be a movement quote unquote of the people yet it would it would uh, give the government massively increased powers i mean just if any of his if he's serious about any of his policies so on the mm-hmm. left and the right you have these people who want to wield more power in the government who want the government maybe sanders is against the millionaires and billionaires being able to bribe and have consultants and have you know the lobbyists and get favors and deals. And Trump is the little man speaking for the little man, i.e., the older white man who's mad at everyone else. Um, But on the left and the right, you have both of these people saying, you know what the problem is? The problem is the government doesn't have enough power or Mm -hmm. that there's stupid people wielding that power. And I would wield that power better for you. So that's where it comes down for me that, that there are huge ideological differences between Sanders and Trump. Like obviously massive, massive ideological differences but both of them are kind of implicitly saying, "What's wrong is the government's not big enough, it's not powerful enough, it's not doing enough for you, my audience." And that's something that we call demagoguery, right? Something that, that it's when mm-hmm. someone speaks directly to the people. And many of these these philosophical notions of the founding fathers were they were very they were frightened of both a king-like, monarch-like president and of uh, the mob. And where the the mob and a king-like president come together is a demagogue, is a person who can can control the mob, can manipulate the mob, who gets power from the mob, but then acts as a strongman on the mob's behalf and wields power in an elite way that is not checked or balanced by other branches or by the concept of federalism, which is that relationship between a centralized uh, government and some powerful decentralized government. So, I mean, it's happening right now. We see it. We see we see these ideas having very real consequences in our in our in our place of time. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it it goes back to Plato, and so if I was going to lay my like my da 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 spiel on on it, um, I think Plato himself, whoever the hell he was. Um, mm-hmm. Hat-o. contains within his dialogues and in the in, in the Republic, uh which are also dialogues, um, that kind of the both extremes that I don't think are great. Um so on in the classic world you have these sophists running around. Alright, who, who are they? They are like cool kids. They're not actually children, but they're like cool guys who some girls too. Um, Cool guys, few ladies, who are walking around, and they are tutors to the wealthy in Athens. And what they tutor their children and even adults in is not reason, um, is not philosophy proper, but in rhetoric. Yep. So these are people who either implicitly or explicitly say... What really controls a democracy like Athens isn't having the best argument. It's sounding like you have the best argument. Mm-hmm. Um and so rhetoric becomes a huge like must have option for So the Sophists are the
0: first the sophists are the first PR people.
1: Yeah. They're like a PR firm in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. And I think Don Draper in his most deprived state is just a pure sophist. You know, yeah. it's like whatever there is no reality, it's just what you make of it. So why not mm-hmm. just be a charming, charismatic dude and just
0: Yeah, it's whoever out. can tell the best story and sway the basically manipulate the emotions of the masses to their own ends.
1: Mm-hmm. Mhm. So Plato reacts very strongly to this, I think sophistry is still a word we use now negatively. I don't think anyone is happy to be called a sophist. Um, yeah, but nobody really knows what it means. Yeah. Um, but even in common usage, not that it's used very commonly, but I've heard it used a couple of times. I've heard Donald Trump been, you know, that he is he uses a lot of sophistry, which is just like mm-hmm. double speak, smooth talking, and mm-hmm. stuff But Plato reacts very negatively to it and says, like, you know, I hate, in better wording, but, like, I hate this. Um, um, Or rather, Socrates, who is maybe me, hates this at this point. Um, And he proposes a system which kind of enforces an order on these things, a republic, that even if sophistry is widespread, this system would resist it. Um, So instead of allowing every person, every landowner in Athens to go into town and get manipulated by someone who knows how to speak rhetorically, um, a system would be in place to kind of keep that in check. But I also think he starts getting into the problem with a too federalist in American terms type of government. Um, I agree. My natural inclination is that people left to their own devices can be very easily manipulated and mob mentality is not a great thing. Mm -hmm. I don't put it in the language of like sheeple versus the select few who really see it. It's more Mm -hmm. like most people are worried about, is my daughter okay? is mm-hmm. my is my husband who has lymphoma going to live mm-hmm. is my mm-hmm. job that's in the steel sector going to disappear because of china yeah, yeah the, the most the most charitable way data. to put it
0: is that normal everyday people are using their capacities their intellectual emotional mm-hmm. physical capacities to try to make the best life for themselves and Mm-hmm. Most of the time that doesn't involve deep political or philosophical thought because it doesn't come up that often.
1: Yeah, they're busy. They're busy. Everyone's busy. And I don't <laughs> think that's a bad thing, you know. But it also leaves people open to, like, when you've dedicated your whole life to help your son who was born with a very intense um, kind of of Down syndrome be a better human being and to be happy and successful, then policies that can maybe touch on that maybe, or seem like they do, of how expensive that will be to get him his special education, his medication, his therapy, all that stuff, it becomes easy to manipulate that person because they're almost like, they're too specialized, if that makes sense. And obviously someone who was a coal miner in West Virginia, has specialized into a certain economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think that's, a big, that's a big point yeah. to be made, is that uh,
0: specialization, economic specialization, especially post-industrial economic specialization, mm-hmm. um, leads to a situation in which less and less people have time or are directed towards spending time and energy thinking about things that aren't their
1: specialty. Mhm exactly, and I think that that is how you that's how you avoid coming off as an as an asshole, you know, like I think a lot of times when we talk about mob rule and the mass the unwashed masses, mm-hmm. there's this sense of like because I spend all day thinking about what the word being means that I'm somehow mm-hmm. above other people mm-hmm. when in reality. For whatever reason, you you this is important to you, and for other people it's not. So who cares?
0: Yeah, and I think this is important because the last ten years to twenty years, um, there have been a lot of articles and books written about this, like the death of expertise, the end of elitism, all this stuff. Where because of the internet, because of social media, you know, everyone's everyone's an artist, everyone's a writer, everyone's a thinker, everyone has a voice, all that stuff, which is, I think, more of an illusion than a reality, because you still have New York Times bestsellers. And I think one of the things that's ignored by people who want you know, to throw the bums out and get rid of career politicians and everything is that in most areas of our lives, we still do want experts. Like Mm -hmm. I want an expert to fix my engine. If my engine blows, I want an expert to perform surgery on my body. I want an expert to teach me a language and to teach me many things. I want an expert to make my baked goods you know, I want people who are really good, who have figured it out, who do it the best way. I want experts to make my vitamins. I want experts to make my iPhone. So we do want people who are very specialized and expert. I just think that because we are, we've been kind of infiltrated by pragmatism and materialism. Um, we think of experts as people who do practical and material things. And we don't think of experts as like the downfall of the spiritual expert or the thought expert or the, the government expert, which seems kind of like soft skills.
1: Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think most
0: of us are like, Hey, farmers should be running those nuclear plants over there. You know, we're not, most people aren't clamoring for that because that's a very pragmatic materialist thing, but we kind of are attracted, I think as a, as a general population, to people who are like, I'm an outsider, I've never run anything in my life, except for I'm a businessman. So you should make me you know, everyone wants to be an outsider this political cycle. So it's like, make our we want a president Mm -hmm. who's never been in office before, because they're corrupt, and they're bums. And what do they know anyway? And it's like, well, we're not saying that about our surgeons. We're not saying that about our farmers. We're not saying that about anyone else, because those people are dealing with material things that are very visible. And they're very practical. I think where we've come to doubt expertise is in things connected to philosophy because of postmodern, you know, thinking, and because of the questioning of of authority and of establishment and of mm-hmm. structure and of power, you know, all of those things, anything that's connected to philosophy, theology, institutions, organization of society, kind of things that are harder to see. I think those are the things that we've questioned and we've questioned some of the very philosophical assumptions that, ha- that undergirded the founding of our Republic.
1: Mm. Yeah. I think, I I think that's absolutely correct. <laughs> I, mean, I, I know it sounds silly to say that, but. But, but what do we do? This...
0: Given everything that you've said and everything that I've said and all these complicated things with Sophists and Plato and Rousseau and Locke and Hobbes and and Adams and Jefferson and Trump and Sanders and all these ideas flying around and television and the internet, mm-hmm. like, what do we even do? Like we're doing a podcast right now. How can we even be helpful to people to think about this? Like what are, like, we have about 20 minutes left in the podcast. Let's try to help people think about this. Like how do they navigate this? How does this kind of come down to the pharmacist or the baker or
1: the barista? The candlestick maker. Mm-hmm. Um well, I I mean I'll finish my thought on Plato and I think that will have a I, I think I'll I'll, I'll okay. lead into that. So on one side you have the, the sophist, but i was going to say I don't like I don't think anyone really likes, but I particularly don't like Plato's We <laughs> here. Like create a noble lie that like yep. people were made out of different types of precious metals and this will kind of keep this artificial order and we the philosopher kings will know the truth but it's because mm-hmm. we can handle it, quote-unquote. Yeah, so it's like super elitist, super like yeah. we're smart and they're it's, dumb. Yeah, it's basically like it, only elites really need to be in the know and then we'll just keep the whole charade going so people don't kill mm-hmm. each other. Um, I'm not I'm not really into that either. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what he does touch on, and this might be a kind of deconstructionist reading of Plato, is that... He starts using sophistry, you know, like a noble lie is a rhetorical Mm -hmm. tool. Yes, it has to do with the truth, but he's Mm -hmm. basically dazzling ancient peoples, especially when he Mm -hmm. uses these weird metaphors of like gold and lead and silver.
0: Yeah, he's using the tools of his opponents to do something that he says, well, trust me, It's like what Trump is saying. He's like, you hate Obama. I'm going to use the same things Obama used, but I'm going to use them for your good rather than for someone else's good.
1: Yeah. And I think what I would say is thinkers need to, um, hmm, they need to be interesting, which sounds so shallow. Mm -hmm. It -hmm. sounds so stupid. But I think the problem is the Western university system can really only handle one type of academic, which is the scholar. So mm-hmm. it's very easy to, even from like an administrative level, I imagine, it's very easy mm-hmm. for someone to say, I am interested in being a Jane Austen scholar for her early novels in the direction of women's economic uh, you know, place in Edwardian society in light of Marxism. Like, that's so spe- specific mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. tiny. And I'm not saying that it's not important, and I think those people mm-hmm. are really cool and smart. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so, like, you get your niche, you fill mm-hmm. it up, and you're good. And you're, like, another... It's German model. model. It's a
0: hyper-specialization model.
1: Yeah, exactly. However, the type of broad intellect, the type of um, someone, like, Gore Vidal, for example, who like is, who was kind of gross, Mm -hmm. but our Noam Chomsky, even Um, Christopher Hitchens, when he wasn't being a Mm -hmm. crazy person. Yeah. I think Hitchens sometimes was a very
0: broad, thoughtful, you know, academic.
1: Mm -hmm. And the thing about broad academics is they actually tend to be interested because what they talk about is what normal people talk about. So like a Jane early Jane Austen economic specialist who is eighth wave feminist and seventh wave Marxist. um, Mm -hmm. Like you already have to kind of buy into all of that to Mm -hmm. want to go see that person talk. Well, I
0: think, I think the closest analogs we have today are like the, the, and they're a little bit more populist mm-hmm. is um, David Brooks and Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. They write yeah. New York Times bestsellers. They popularize other people's research. Not They don't claim it for their own. They just say, this person said this, and here's how it applies to your life. I think they're kind of like a poor man's ancient, broad, scholarly thinker that's for everybody. Like public intellectual is basically what we're mm-hmm. talking
1: about. Yeah. And I think part of being a public intellectual is just learning how to play the game. You know, not yes. succumbing to it, but it's like if you want someone to give Donald Trump a run for his money, you know. Yeah. And most of the Republican candidates, because of mm-hmm. how po- politicians are trained, how to mm-hmm. stand, how to hold themselves, mm-hmm. blah 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 blah, blah, just got completely like. I mean, they looked like, like you know, not work and Bruce Kennedy you know it's Mm -hmm. like Donald Trump is playing a game that they don't even know the rules of Mm -hmm. and he's very good at playing the game
0: because of being on reality television for a decade
1: he's very and being a popular culture icon you know he knows how to do that and he already has clout Um, Mm -hmm. and I think you know I think this election would be unbelievably interesting in my opinion if it was Donald Trump versus 1996 Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. I think that would be, I would love to see what those debates w-
0: mm-hmm. would
1: be like. Um, I think that's something that it's it's so different from that. So basically what I, I guess what I'm saying is like, I think that there's a lot of like naysaying, doom, doom wishing of like the public is illiterate and people are glued to their TVs and their Mm -hmm. smartphones and blah, blah, blah. And everyone's an idiot. But I also don't, A, I don't really believe that. And B, it's, it's our fault. Like when you become so irrelevant, almost on purpose, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, I've seen a lot of articles. Sorry to interrupt
0: you, but I've seen uh, some good articles in the last five five years and some good pop articles and some good uh, articles in scholarly journals just saying we desperately need academics who can communicate to the populace. We desperately need Mm -hmm. we need to abandon jargon. Because we're we're not even doing the job of protecting ourselves from market forces and insulating ourselves. Like your jargon is not going to save you. We need to abandon mm. kind of insiderism and specializationism. There's been a lot of books written about this, articles written about this. We need to return to a more public intellectualism that joins the university as a um, working cog and member in the rest of society. Like if you if you look back at old time magazines like mm-hmm. it wasn't just like steve jobs and you know marco rubio who are on the cover of old time magazines it was uh reinhold niebuhr reinhold mm-hmm. niebuhr wrote for for the highest academic journals you could possibly write in for theology and philosophy he was also writing in the american century and other kind of christian social magazines and in Um, And early Niebuhr is socialist. So he's writing in socialist publications. He's writing for the New York Times magazine. I mean, there are people operating at These are intellectuals operating at every level of society from preaching in the pulpit on a Sunday or having conversations in a cafe with people all the way up to the highest, most elite levels. And like we have less and less of those people. We have mostly, like you said, scholars who can operate on the high scholarly levels or even just within their own ghetto of their academic specialization. But there are fewer and fewer academics over the, the last hundred years that can truly address laymen, people who aren't as well educated people who don't have the jargon or the specific training out you know in the people who are outside of their discipline that is something we desperately need not just for the good of academia but for academia to serve the purpose it was meant to serve in society to be an organ of thought for society not just unto itself
1: mm-hmm. I mean you you nailed it you well, absolutely to, to, nailed it
0: to, to be self serving that's what this podcast is Like you and I could just talk on the phone all day about, oh, how Foucaultian was that debate? Let's be Mm -hmm. this. Let's do that. French, 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 German, German, German. The point of this podcast is to cultivate an intellectual middle class, is to cultivate a group of people having true conversations, real conversations who maybe don't have time to read the critique of pure reason. Maybe they don't have time to read the Republic. Maybe they just want to be informed. They want to think deeply. They want to be able to engage with with deep philosophical ideas that do affect society, that do affect governance, that do affect the Republic. They want to know where ideas come from. They want to know enough history and enough philosophy to be able to make informed decisions, to stay plugged in, and to smell, excuse my language, to smell bullshit to be mm-hmm. like i don't fully buy what this politician is selling me or what that politician is selling me or what that business is selling me because i've thought about it a couple layers deep because i'm listening to these kinds of podcasts and reading these kinds of Malcolm Gladwell books or whatever it is but mm-hmm. it's it's our job as the cognoscenti or the intelligentsia to you know Take these terms back from coffee shops. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's our it's our job to talk about these things, to think about these things, and then and here's where we failed to communicate them to people who don't have time for this crap.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest the biggest block is. And this happens all the time with minority groups, and I'm not talking about race or ethnicity or sexuality, but just any type of minority group in the world. Mm -hmm. It's like the basic understanding when someone says this is a minority is that you are not the majority. Am I wrong in thinking that? If you're
0: 49%, like for instance, in society, Mm -hmm. males are a minority. They are
1: 49%. Is if you don't have a way to make the majority care... And I think this becomes more and more important the bigger the disparity between minority numbers and majority numbers in different areas are. Yeah. Then it nothing will happen. And mm-hmm. so I think with it's like you're you are let's person A is a person who cares about how can we know if an object still has the same identity, if all of its Material parts and attributes have been slowly replaced over the a certain period of time. If that's mm-hmm. something that keeps them up at night, they are probably 0.05% of the population. Okay. Yeah. And so they have two options. They can either say, well, I'm going to find everyone else who cares about s- stuff like this and mm-hmm. sit in a room that's paid for by the Ohio State football team and yeah. argue with them over the most pedantic hyper 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 specific and and I'll lay my cards on the table here again nonsense in my opinion Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and that will be my career that's going to be my whole career and I'll teach some bioethics class for the pre-meds and I'll do like Mm -hmm. one law class and I'll pay my dues and do whatever I want you have that option. Um, teach a class on
0: LOL business ethics.
1: hmm. L O L business ethics. Wow. Um or the other option is, oh, how can I get other people to care about this? Which can either be very manipulative or it can be really great, you know? Like it yeah. can because what that really means, and this is to borrow from Gautamer, you're really merging horizons. You know, like What you're you you both have to change, and I think that's Mm -hmm. the biggest stumbling block. I think people in academics. I think the new science: Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye, Mm -hmm. so and so Mm -hmm. and so and so, forgettable, forgettable, boring. Is this whole cry of like, look at all these different countries, how good their kids are at math and science, and like Mm -hmm. America's just falling way behind because we don't we don't put enough care into this. And there's also people who idiots. say idiots. And my biggest thing is, like, why? Like, you, you, you're basically saying people should come to us. We are not going to other people. And it's the same thing philosophers did in the 20s and 30s and 40s, where it's like, we're at Cambridge, we're going to do all this weird stuff, and if people are interested, if they can handle it, they can read some of it. But, well, and not to get know, like... too
0: far off into the science debate, because we need to talk about science <laughs> bros sometime, and mm-hmm. Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson, and how mm-hmm. much of a wasted opportunity Cosmos was. Um, but it's like when you reach out to people and you try to popularize something and be like, "See, Cosmos, science is cool, evolution and biology and all this stuff, and the universe, and you know, and astronomy, you should care about this stuff." Like, it it shouldn't be, you shouldn't express it to people in that hey, look at the way we're doing this. If you don't get this, you're stupid. And if you don't get this, you might even be evil. What you need to do Mm -hmm. is, like you said, create a third way in which you say, hey, look how much better your life as it is. We're not trying to convince you of a bunch of stuff, you know, to change your whole worldview here. We're trying to say, hey, look how much more enriched your life can be if your life is supplemented by this set of perspectives or truths or skills or
1: claims or whatever, yeah, and that requires you the academic to change as well because what you care yeah. about will sometimes have to take a back seat to what others care about because that's yeah, basically can't, what can't you're asking them to do, but it's so unfair, yeah it's so unfair to ask the masses to change their priorities when you're not willing to change your own. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's, it's finding that weird balance between being a person of the public, but also holding on to your ideals. And that's always a hard thing to do. So it's, mm-hmm. it's just difficult.
0: All right. Final takeaways. If you have to tell somebody something that will actually help them, we're going to practice what we preach here and try to give you something to hold on to as you get out of your car or finish your workout or throw your phone down in disgust. Um, Do you have anything that you think would concretely help our seven listeners to navigate this world, this world of our republic, of philosophical ideas, of a society that has all these fluctuations we've been talking about, experts, non-experts, mobocracy, elitism, is there anything we can actually do to help people in their everyday lives lives as we close out this episode of the Me?
1: Mm. Huh. I think I think sitting if you have that perspective, you know, if you know the history of our country, the history of politics, if you've been mm-hmm. gifted with an education with literacy and stuff like that. I think you can practice what you preach, and I'm guilty of this in a lot of ways, is when you hear someone going, Bernie, or like, I've never Mm -hmm. heard someone go, Trump, but Mm -hmm. uh, if someone's really feeling the burn, it's easy to withdraw and be like, wow, sheeple idiots following an internet trend, and not actually engage with that person, Mm -hmm. but... I think it would be helpful if you can swallow your pride and not come off as an elitist asshole to just mm-hmm. have a conversation with them about why they think government exists in the first place, and that yeah. and that feels silly, and it might even be silly to them, mm-hmm. but but mm-hmm. it might also be illuminating. And I just so you know, ask
0: people questions. Ask the non-experts in your lives. In your lives questions about like why they think the things that exist do exist and use the fact that if you're a historian or a poli sci major or a philosopher or a sociologist or whatever use the fact that you do have maybe better resources or, or more depth of knowledge and make sure that you're actually being fair to them and the way they view things like mm-hmm. by, by asking them questions and listening to like their version of how no matter how silly or wrong you think that someone who disagrees with you is listening to their version of like, Oh, this is how I think we got here can be really rewarding because you can kind of, from an elitist perspective, you can correct them where they're wrong. But from a Mm -hmm. non-elitist perspective, you both can learn together as you mutually inform. Like if someone just doesn't like, if someone just doesn't know how the United States came about, which a shockingly high, percentage of, of American adults don't like it's a really interesting conversation to have and usually people will be more open to you if you don't just tell them hey let me enlighten you if you actually listen to them first and listen to what they know first and to meet like you said with Gadamer you know meet horizons with them so that you can have a meaningful discussion that enriches both of you hopefully.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly and it's in a way it is returning to Plato it's it's having a dialogue and yeah, part of I think what makes intellect public intellectuals nervous is when you ask someone like why does the government exist? That seems so either lofty or childish, a mix of both, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, but honestly, it's an important question, and I don't I think some people have never been asked that question directly, you know? So it's mm-hmm. just it's it's being willing to ask basic questions and talk through them with someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about
0: I think you? That's, yeah, I, I, I think what I would say on the other side of the coin of, like, you know, we kind of address the first take home to the people who are maybe a little bit more elitist. Um, and to the people on the other side of the coin that happen to listen to our podcast, I would just say, like, I think it's really important for all of us, n- not just specialists, to have, like, a really kind of basic narrative understanding of where we came from. So just Mm -hmm. like a basic history of ideas, a basic history of, uh, politics, a basic history of law, a basic history of our, of our culture and our society. I think that's important because it's really hard to even have these conversations when like one partner is like you and I both have these discussions where we're like, Oh yeah. Like we'll mention Andrew Jackson. And if Mm -hmm. someone's like, well, I don't even know who Andrew Jackson is, like then you have to go back. You have to do so much excavation and so much building of a foundation to even have the conversations that sometimes you can't even have the conversation that you wanted to have. Mm -hmm. So I think it is incumbent upon all of us. And this is part of our public education system and its flaws. It's incumbent upon all of us to have like a basic understanding of how the government works, where we came from. And so from the elite side, you could be like, well, we have the, the noblesse oblige. We have the noble obligation to educate people, but that's not really like we live in a Republic and in a Republic citizens are the, are the and families of citizens are the are the building block. They're the cornerstone. They're the foundation. So we really do need to encourage everybody to have at least a basic understanding of a lot of, like they don't need to know that Plato said there was a philosopher king that was made out of gold. Like they don't mm-hmm. need that, but they, we do need to just kind of have a basic citizen deposit of knowledge that most people have. And I think that's why public education and improving public education and um, in particular civics and the soft social sciences and philosophy, why that's so important. Mm. Well, that is all the time that we have for this topic today. So what are we going to talk about next week in episode 25 of The Mean? Nick?
1: Um, The last remaining public intellectuals. Yep. Drag queens.
0: Nice. Yeah. So drag queens it is. Drag queens are surprisingly a surprisingly fertile ground for conversation about uh, taking stands and saying true things and being able to be honest. But uh, we will discuss that next week, drag queens. But for now, this has been Ryan. And Nick. And you will hear from us
1: next week. Bye. Bye.